Holy crap, are you ready to do our first ever podcast? Nope. <laughs> All right, <laughs> let's do this. Podcasting from Wisconsin, the show ski capital of the world. This is The Ski Show, the ultimate show ski podcast. Hear interviews with the legends and stars of our sport, gain knowledge and insight about all things show skiing, and just maybe they'll pleasure your ear holes along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Matt Heilman and Adam Schaller. Welcome, everyone, to the first episode ever of The Ski Show. This is not only our first episode of this podcast, it is our first ever podcast. And we have absolutely no idea what we're doing, so I hope we don't screw it up. <laughs> I've been thinking about doing this podcast for a long time, Adam, and I've always felt that our show ski community needed something like this. Yeah, and what better time to crank out a bunch of interviews for our episodes than during a time where we all have to be at home during the quarantine? Can I just say this about the quarantine? I cannot wait for my kids to go back to school, and I cannot wait for ski season to start, and neither one is going to happen. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, Governor Evers has basically no more school except for online for the rest of the year here in Wisconsin, and you know what? I'm okay with it. I'm somewhat of a homebody myself, and honestly, I've been practicing social distancing my whole life, so not not a big change for me. <laughs> No, here's what I've learned in in this quarantine and this uh, stay-at-home order. I am not a stay-at-home parent. God bless all the parents that are stay-at-home parents. You guys are the true miracle workers. I mean, I love my kids, but I also hate my kids. <laughs> am I allowed to say that? Well, you just did. <laughs> I mean... This 24-7, 365 parenting during quarantine might literally kill me before coronavirus does. I mean, there's some parents that can do it 24-7, 365. I'm more of a 12-5, 240 kind of parent. <laughs> I get it. I totally get it. Yeah, I mean, I'll say this. I really miss going to our kids' games, uh, dance recitals, soccer games, basketball games. I love watching my kids play. Uh, the other aspect I've realized through this quarantine that I love in watching them play is that they can't bother me while they're playing. Actually, I get to bother them from the sidelines. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, you know, my, uh, the kids and, you know, my kids, my three kids in their age right now, uh, fairly self-sufficient. They do have homework assignments every day, but unfortunately they are done with those at about... 11 o'clock in the morning. So they have the rest of the day where they are just running around and getting on each other's nerves and getting on mom and dad's nerves. But all in all, it's, uh, it's not going too bad. Well, good. I was, you know, in this COVID-19 madness, we're all trying to stay sane. We're trying to stay safe. And it was really during this time that I decided to finally produce this Shosky podcast. We have such a great sport and I believe that this is something we need. I thought it would be beneficial for the show ski community to really have some content, to have some news, have some history, and have some entertainment. And as I got to thinking about it, uh, this is actually the only show ski specific media out there. And that's pretty exciting. 
the Shosky community is such a tight knit group and really unlike any other group that I've been a part of. And we all share the same passion. We share the same love for the sport. So here we are where we've got a podcast to talk about our sport. And and my idea really in my brain is is a few things uh, with this podcast. It's to entertain. Uh, we want to we want to hopefully bring you something that you want to listen to. We want to drop some knowledge and insight about the sport. Uh, we want to bring you guys a sense of history and uh, by hearing from some of the legends, some of the old timers, some of the Hall of Famers in our sport. We want to bring you any relevant news and information and content about show skiing. Uh, and we're going to have guests on nearly every episode to let you guys hear from Hall of Famers of the past as well as rising stars of today. And we really want this to be a show that you crave to listen to, that you find real value in. And that being said, if you guys have content ideas, please send them to us. Uh, we've got an email. You can send ideas directly to us at theskishowpodcast at gmail.com. That's the ski show podcast at gmail.com. You know, most episodes we'll probably have a guest who we interview, but some episodes might just be us talking show skiing, or maybe we'll do some tournament previews if we ever get back to tournament season and, uh, or any other ideas we come up with. It's, it's going to be a work in progress, but we hope you enjoy it and, and we hope you like what we're doing here. You know, Adam, ski season is upon us, and while it may not look the same for show skiers, no coronavirus is going to stop us from boating and skiing on our own. You're right, Matt. It's getting me that time of year again. My kids have literally outgrown all of their ski gear. Same here. That's why I'm glad we have the board shop to help us with all of our new summer gear. Located in Lake Geneva and with a robust online store for all your needs, they've now got all your summer gear ready to go. Vests, ropes, skis, wakeboards, ballast systems, apparel, and so much more. They've literally got all the gear you need. So, just for our listeners, the board shop is offering a deal. Go to their website at bswake.com and purchase everything you need. Enter the discount code THESKISHOW and you'll get 20% off your entire order. Again, the website is bswake.com and discount code the ski show and you'll get 20% off your entire order some exclusions do apply jump skis and roswell gear are not eligible for this discount how are you guys uh handling the corona stay at home are you guys doing okay i know you mentioned you know kids getting done with school pretty early in the morning what else are you guys doing to stay busy well um i'm working from home uh, very fortunate that I'm able to do that. Uh, my wife's a teacher, so she's also at home doing the online teaching thing. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, uh, when work is kind of done for the day and the kids are done, we do generally head out for a, for a walk or a hike just to, just to get outside and, and do something kind of in this spring season before it's, uh, you know, before it warms up and we have the opportunity to uh, get out on the water. Um, and when I say get out in the water, I don't know what that's going to look like yet. Um, as it relates to Mad City, you know, prior to this all happening, um, I was working, I was well into the script and the theming and the production for the year. And then this all kind of happened. And, you know, just recently, actually just last week, I think Abby, our show director had sent me a message and 
was kind of thinking, you know, what are we going to do with this year's theme? And, you know, I guess it's really kind of all up in the air. I mean, I, my personal opinion is, you know, likely we're going to have a shortened season if any season at all. So uh, it was kind of my recommendation that maybe we think about, uh, you know, putting this year's theme on a shelf and just kind of maybe wait until next year to bring that one out and just kind of roll with the punches this year. And I don't know. I don't know what way, I don't know what this year has in store for us. Maybe Matt, you might have some more insight on that. Um, being more heavily involved with USA water ski. I mean, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. We're, we're in a unique time and um, you know, I posted something on social media a little while back. I had a conversation with Nate Boudreau, the executive director of USA water ski. And as of now, uh, sanctioned events are um, shut down until May 16th. Uh, At that time, uh, as of now, um, sanctioned events will be back open. However, they are having internal dialogue at USA Waterski about extending that deadline and and uh, keeping things closed down in the waterski world. Uh, potentially, even to mid to late June is is what they're having conversations on right now. the The challenge for show skiing as well is how much contact we have with each other. I mean, our sport is not like the other disciplines. We have pyramids and doubles and and large teams and tons of contact. A, a three-event skier can grab a rope at the dock and take off and, and hit the slalom course or take a jump set by themselves and show skiing is an, an entirely different animal. So I think we're going to have some challenges uh, this summer getting back uh, to uh, normal, um, whether we are able to have you know small groups or smaller shows or smaller practices. Um, I'm not feeling great about tournament season happening just based on the trajectory of things, but you never know who knows how quickly things change. It's, it's not even May yet. So, so you never know. But Matt, bottom line is if USA water ski does not, um, want to sanction practices or shows or events or tournaments, I mean, that's it, right? I mean, that's no team's going to want to, uh, put on shows or practices that's not sanctioned because they're just opening themselves up to a lot of liability. They just won't be covered if it's not sanctioned. Correct. Correct. And you're, you're, you're running, you're running risks there. If you're um, doing things without the sanctioning of the governing body, I don't see teams doing that at the same time, if we're not able to have shows and solicit sponsors and have fundraisers and collect donations costs a lot of money to do it. We do the the gas and the the expenses and you name it, uh, and so at some point teams are going to have to decide whether they're just going to keep it shut down or they're going to open it back up. Um, it's it's going to be interesting to see how the next few weeks evolve as far as show skiing goes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'll we'll see what happens, but uh, you know, we'll go with what we know today, and we know today that we've got. Uh, a great guest that we're about to interview. It's a great way to launch our new podcast to have one of the all-time greats in our sport on our podcast with us here today. Absolutely. We are blessed to have Hall of Famer Matt May on the show today. He's got an incredible history in this sport from skiing as a child at Tommy Bartlett's to competing in barefoot and on the freestyle jump tour to his many years of performing at Bartlett's and at Cypress Gardens. He was one of the innovators of our sport, one of the all-time greats, 
And he has some great stories to share about his history in the sport and the people who influenced him along the way and his current involvement in the sport of show skiing. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest, Mr. Matt May. All right. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for being here with us today. You are our first guest on our first podcast episode of The Ski Show. Thanks for being here. Guinea pig. It's a pleasure to be be on here, guys. You know, I listen to a lot of podcasts that don't involve water skiing. So let's let's get this thing going and make it a success. Yes, thank you. What are you doing right now during this uh, quarantine time? Are things locked down in Australia? Yeah, well, as you know, since you've left Australia, it's uh, locked down considerably. Um, I work at a resort. I'm an operations manager at a hotel in Surfers Paradise. And we've been closed for about three or four weeks, uh, but we've got a lot of renovations that we're doing uh, in small groups. So it's actually been a positive for us. I'm still coming to work four to five days a week and uh, still getting after it. So things are over here in Australia going okay. What uh, is there a time frame in Australia when they're going to start to – reopen things they have just reopened two of the biggest beaches here on the gold coast so that's a positive sign and they've just announced this morning that our rugby league is opening back up the end of may um, that's probably a little controversial at this point they're going to do it all down in sydney and try to keep the teams separate and in quarantine but our sports has been announced that's coming back in about five weeks wow are they gonna have are they gonna have fans for those games or is it gonna be all televised no fans. I, I believe it's no fans at this point, uh, but they've got to get the season underway uh, from what they feel. And it's definitely a smaller market here in Australia. So um, they get a lot of fans to the games. But I think, you know, to make the, the uh, season happen, they, they've pushed it to the end of May. That's uh, it's a strange times we're living in. And uh, we all, you know, everybody's dealing with the same thing. And uh, hopefully at some point we'll be back to normal. Uh, Matt, I want to take us back to your early, early, early days. Talk about when and where you first learned to water ski. Well, well, I was pretty young. I actually found some photos um, a few years back from August 1977, which is about a month before my second birthday, um, of me skiing off the beach at Tommy Bartlett's. Um, and then uh, due to the fact that, that my uncle Skip was the show director, I believe he put me straight in the show as soon as I could do it. So, um, yeah, on the water before the age of two. Um, and then that progressed, you know, every year I sort of learned something new. I think from when I was two, the second summer, I, you know, ski pretty competently on my trainers with Skip next to me. And um, age four, I learned how to slalom. Age five, I learned how to barefoot. Um, you know, and then sort of progressed on from there. So I, I don't remember a lot probably until I was about nine or ten. Um, don't have a lot of video from the early, the early days, just, uh, some photos, but, uh, certainly a very unique, um, childhood upbringing, uh, being not only at Tommy Bartlett's, but, um, being the uncle of Skip Gilkerson, which gave me a ton of opportunities to move up the ladder in the, in the show ski and the water ski world. So you were skiing at Bartlett's at the age of two? I actually have a tax return from 1977. So they paid me something. Before I turned the age of two, um, so yeah, you know, I guess I don't know what it was. It might have been two dollars a show somewhere in that area. Um, but um, Tom Deal, who's still the the um, 
the big cheese there at Bartlett's, um, you know, they let me do it at the early age. It was nothing against it. And, and Skip being the director, I'm sure he, he pushed for it. And obviously it was a good catch for the show to, to advertise that. I, I think at one point I was age four for about three summers. Well, yeah, we always do that. That's the announcer's job is to, yeah, if you're 10, you're really six. So you technically you were a professional athlete at age two. That's right. Yeah, got paid, you know, and, and I didn't believe it for a while, wow. but yeah, got a tax return from that that era. And I've got a few of my contracts along the way from Bartlett's, um, seeing the pay scale slightly go up along the way. Um, so it was a I was there for actually about 21 years. So when I left in 1997 was my last summer um, and skied there consecutively uh, at least a few weeks out of the year for, for 20, 21 summers. Wow, that is awesome. What, uh, when did you first start competing and in what disciplines did you compete in? Yep. So 1983, I first, I've got my first trophy from 1983, which I would have been seven that summer. Um, and that was in barefooting. So I got into barefooting from an er probably the, the earliest competition. Um, I think 1982, 83, Peter Fleck was skiing at Tommy Bartlett's. So he was a big influence on me. Uh, we used to be up at sunrise and, and uh, training for barefooting um, and actually competed with Mark Mikey at my first tournament, who's the current show director at Bartlett. So him and I go way back and I've got a photo of him and I from our first tournament there at Neosho Pond. Um, you know, there were some some legends there at the time. Jennifer Clary was competing. Uh, Mike Seipel was there. Uh, John Strausser, I think his name was. Um, William Farrell was also around in, in, in that time frame. Or, and uh, so, yeah, barefooting was my first first sort of love. And I guess, um, you know, three event came came after that. Cool. That's awesome. Well, back in 83 in the barefoot competitions, are they with similar disciplines as it was as it set up today with the slalom trick and jump? We actually had a starts competition as well. So you could you could step off. You could use a ski at that time. And so I, I know I could do a deep water, but I, I did a step off as well. Uh, I wasn't backwards barefooting quite then, but um, yeah, I think there was there was more of a, a four event. Now they've included starts basically into the trick run. Uh, you get credit for that. So a little bit different, a little bit more people with step off skis back then. So in 1983, you would have been eight, right? Uh, I, so my birthday is the first week of September. So um, it was I was set seven turning eight that summer. So seven years old, what, I mean, I can't remember when I was seven, but when did you, when did you first kind of figure out that, you know, this was kind of your thing and you were kind of a big deal, like you were good at it. This was, uh, I, I think when I got to about the age of 10, I had the opportunity to do exhibitions on the pro tour. So Skip was the director um, of the tour, basically director of events. Um, and once I could do helis off the ramp and I was pretty confident with my barefooting, he brought me along to several of the pro tours. Um, I clearly remember the one in Madison. I think it was 1987. I would have been 11 that summer. Um, but I, I actually did the the scene the whole year. I was 11 and 12, 87, 88. I went to every tour stop around the country, um, got to stay with Skip, got to meet Sammy Duvall, got to hang out with, you know, Camille, Dina, um, Scotty Clack, um, you know, all the legends, Carl Bears of that time. And, um, really sort of got my foot in the door that way and and uh had a pretty fun couple of summers not only skiing at bartlett's but traveling traveling the world 
uh, or traveling the States anyway, um, with all the, the big competitors of the time. So you've you've already mentioned Skip's name a couple times, and as as you know, show skiing is such a family sport. Probably no no other sport like it. Talk about your relationship with your uncle Skip Gilkerson and what influence he had on you. So I'm I'm the youngest of three children. Uh, my older brother and sister never really took to the skiing, so I think I was kind of his his last resort. Um, Skip never had any kids of his own either, so he he treated uh, my brother and sister and I like his kids. Um, he had us for the summer, and um, look, Skip, I just remember him. He just exuded so much confidence. You know, he 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 did have a huge ego, um, but he pulled it off. Um, you know, he just his confidence. He always made you believe in yourself. Um, you could achieve anything beyond your skill set. He was very genuine. Always had time for people. Um, he just had a had a knack for for coaching and making people better, and and uh, he continued that well after water skiing. I mean, one of the things that people forget about his water ski legacy is he went on to coach swimming and track and field uh, at a high school in Texas for seven or eight years, and went from a program in, in um, swimming that went from nothing to being regional champion. So he just had a gift. He just had an absolute gift of of coaching. Uh, and he was a bigger than life personality. He was politically incorrect and he, and he pulled it off. So um, a lot of uh, very unique qualities uh, that Skip brought to, to um, me, my growing up, and obviously to the Shosky community as well. Are there things that you've learned from Skip that you now pass down to your family and your kids? Yeah, I guess my kids are in a little bit different element. They're not in as much of the water ski world. Um, I try to give him opportunity, and I think that's the biggest thing that Skip did for me is he opened opportunities, and and fortunately, he pushed me enough to, to take them. Uh, so that's what I try to create for my kids. You know, they may not like a certain sport, but hey, let's try it for a couple of weeks. Let's see what the opportunities are um, and, and give them that support that you know, to try anything and, uh, and hopefully they'll succeed at it. My, my daughter has been very fortunate. She's a national champion already. Um, track star. She's, a, uh, just turned 11, but age 10, her relay team won the nationals. So, uh, and Skip was a coach in track and field. So I'd like to believe that he had something to do with her early success already. So it's, um, as you know, it's a lot of fun and challenges raising kids, but now I'm starting to see the success that, uh, Skip probably saw on me. So it's, um, very cool to watch uh, your kids succeed and and hopefully I'm teaching them some of the things that Skip was able to bring uh, and teach me. Pretty rewarding. I remember you you doing that uh, Facebook Live video of that national relay. Uh, that was so cool to to see you in that father role uh, and and how uh, meaningful that was to you. Special moments in time. We get to capture them now. Some of the some of the early times that uh, in our childhoods. You know, for better or worse, we haven't captured it all. But, um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun being a dad. Absolutely. Yeah, obviously there's good genetics at play here, right? I mean, if you look at Skip and Matt and now his daughter, there's <laughs> – right? Um, Matt, so you you excelled in multiple disciplines of water skiing, jump and barefoot and wakeboard and probably a lot of other things. Um, you know, you were just good at a lot of shit. Now – Understand that when I joined a show ski team, I joined as a water skier. Um, obviously, now that I'm an announcer, I didn't excel that much at water skiing, but I do, I do understand 
what it takes to get good at something. But water skiing is not like juggling, right? You know, juggling you can you can read a book or look it up online and you can go in your basement and you can practice and you know until you get good at it. You drop a ball, you pick it back up and you keep going. Water skiing is just a different animal, right? You need a body of water, you need a boat, you need a driver, you need a rider, uh, you need time, you need good weather. And if you're learning a new trick, you know, you fall, the boat has to turn around, pick you back up, you start again, and you do it all over. I mean, it's just, it's very time consuming. How, how did you get that good at that many things? Uh, look, I certainly had a lot of opportunity. Skip always gave me the time, uh, you know, from the time the sun came up. Um, until 12 o'clock uh, at Bartlett's, we had time to ski. Uh, but I think it, it, it's, it sounds like a cliche, but it does come back to fundamentals. And I guess for me growing up, um, I did a lot of trick skiing. I did a lot of shoe skiing. Uh, I did a lot of like endurance barefooting. I ro rode my jump skis a lot um, and just tried to put in as much time on any device as I could. Um, and I think certainly pushing those fundamentals and, and watch the Jordan document uh, documentary just a couple days ago. And they talked to, about his fundamentals. And I thought, you know, there's probably not as much of that in water skiing as there was 30 years ago. I mean, I grew up with the Tolzman uh, grant and carry and, and their trick ski backgrounds. And then you just watch how um, trick skiing is a very solid one to get you everywhere in, in water skiing. Uh, and I think just putting in the time, everybody wants to jump to the, the next level now. And that's great. But at some point, um, the, the talent runs out and the, funda my, the fundamentals need to be in place. Yeah, that's it's funny you mentioned uh, that because a lot of us in this area in Wisconsin grew up like at guys my age. We uh, grew up learning from Kerry Tolzman. We went to his ski school and that's what he taught us. Get on the trick ski. That's the first thing you're going to do is get solid on the trick. And that's going to be your balance and your fundamentals for everything. And so a lot of people uh, that in our era grew up doing that but as you said I, I think that's changed a little bit now and I, i'd like to see us get back to that certainly on the jump ramp as well um you know there's not many guys that i know uh, in the show ski world that are into three event jumping um i don't know how many tournaments around wisconsin but uh it was a bit more popular when i grew up and certainly referring to carrie tolzman again he had ski to cora up uh, near adams and he held a lot of tournaments up there um so it's maybe a little bit tougher to get into as far as three event skiing, you know, the other thing now in show skiing is that it's so time consuming, um, you know, telling you guys who know, but you know, you're busy five, six nights a week. So when do you have time, you know, to go to a different site and train for a different discipline? Yeah. When you're in show skiing, you don't have time for water skiing. <laughs> Very true. You know what else is true, Adam? We couldn't have a great podcast without great sponsors. That's right. Fittingly, for this episode, we are blessed to be sponsored by Action Horizons, a global stunt action company that employs approximately 300 performers for productions at Universal Studio theme parks. For our money, nothing beats Universal theme parks. We took our family to Universal last fall, and the kids absolutely loved it. Well, Action Horizons employs stunt performers at shows all over the globe. They have shows at Universal Studios Hollywood, Universal Florida, Universal Japan, Universal Singapore, and two new shows debuting in 2021 in both Singapore and in Beijing. The other thing that's awesome about Action Horizons is that they employed a lot of show skiers in their various shows. It's a great place for skiers who want to become stunt performers and travel the globe. 
For more information about Action Horizons, visit actionhorizons.com. So let's take it forward now. You you started your early days at Bartlett's, but you also skied at the gardens at a really young age. Can you talk about some of your days at Cypress Gardens and some of the greats who influenced you at that time when you were there? Yep. So I'll go back just two years. Uh, I got an opportunity when I was 13 to, to go to Fort Lauderdale, Florida and ski in a show called Atlantis. Um, skied with Dave Reinhardt, show that Peter Fleck ran. And I uh, got some experience with skiing with some different people throughout Florida. Um, in the winter of 91, I was uh, 15, and Skip hooked me up to go ski there for about three months. Took time off school um, and went basically to learn mobs that, that uh, winter. Um, so it, it, was, uh, it wasn't intimidating at first. I, I did know a few of the guys. I had mean, known Scotty Clack um, from traveling along the Pro Tour. Um, I was living around Lucky Low and training with him for, for three event skiing. Um, but the gardens at that time, you know, was the, the, ep- the epicenter of show skiing. Uh, I think the guys were, were nice to me for about the first week and maybe gave me a slight break because I was 15. Um, but then the initiations came out pretty soon after that. Um, the first being the uh, whatever it was, the Icy Hot or the uh, Ben Gay to the, to the manhood area. They tie you down to the bench, and that was the initiation. Um, I remember my first four-man jump act. Mark Voisard told me, "I know you're going to be all right. You're going to be fine. You know, have fun out there, but just be careful." And he kept kind of trying to tell me to be careful. And I, I didn't know what he meant or what, where he was going with it. But as soon as I landed, my did about five jumps. I think I had double gainer. We did double heli split, and uh, you know, few few jumps in between. But on the four-man flip, as soon as I landed, Dave Dodder pulled up on his rope about two feet came over and just completely took me out. I had to swim in my first act. So uh, that was part of the initiation there, whether you were 15 or uh, any age. But, uh, you know, there were so many good skiers down there um, that you, they, they were just really pushed every discipline. Mark Voisard maybe practiced doubles from an early age. Felt really sorry for the girl that had to practice doubles with me. Um, but uh, it was really, really well done, um, you know, full-time job. So that was my first experience of people that – skied for you know well 365 days a year um you know some of the greats that i skied with down there uh dave dodder being one of them scotty clack actually wasn't skiing at the time but he taught me mobs he i think he had moved up to the front office at cypress around that time uh punky forgiana is a name that probably doesn't get mentioned enough punky was an absolute crazy barefooter at a young age uh, on the world team probably from around age 14 um but he was the man at cypress um, Ty Ingeseth, another guy from Mad City. I, I didn't meet, never knew Ty before I went to um, Cyprus. And him and I, he, he actually was kind of my protector. He looked after me a bit, so nice guy. And come to find out that I actually went to school with his sister, uh, I never never knew it. So I'm not sure if you guys know Ty from the Mad City days. Um, but uh, a, a lot of great skiers down there, Mark Voicer, Brian Voicer, and, and um, really was inspired by the Voicerts to learn how to hang glide and, and um you know, couldn't wait to uh, get my opportunity to do that. So um, the gardens was a great experience. I did ski there a little bit in, in 93 with, with Zane Schwenk and Steve Bates, and they were some crazy times. But, um, yeah, the gardens was, was cool, and uh, I'm glad I got to have that experience in my life. So when did you make your first MOBE? You just mentioned learning MOBEs that 
year, that winter when you were down there, how old were you when you made your first MOBE? Yeah, so I was 15 and um, I made my fourth one, which was pretty cool. Um, and then that 91 season, I went on tour and skied all the skied all the stops. Um, learned one ski mobs sort of midway through the summer. Uh, actually made my first one ski mob at a tournament out in Marine World um, and got second place at age 15. So that was that was a big tick career highlight for me. Um, Skip was on the microphone and basically telling everybody he's never attempted one. He's going to hit the rope. He's going to eat shit. You know, wait for it. Everybody watch this. This is going to be great. And um, actually made a pretty good one ski mode first attempt and, and beat Brett Wing and, and uh, you know, jumped into second place. So that, that kind of vaulted me into, you know, into the freestyle world, freestyle world, I guess. And and uh, made me you know believe I could I could hang with these guys that were five to ten years older than me. Wow. Is there, you know, so if you learn mobs at 15, um, you know, is there a different the way you learn them? Is there a different technique? nowadays is it slower is it easier is it or is it the same thing you tell me um well i guess looking back at it now you've got the kicker ramps at wakeboard parks so that's a lot if you i tell anybody if you're going to try to learn them over learn gainers go to a wake park the slow speed the rope's pulling you up uh you know it's a kicker ramp um whereas you know learning it when i did and the guys that i taught uh in the mid nineties, like Eric Schultz and Fred Wingate, it was 35 miles an hour. Make sure you got a good kick at the ramp. And, uh, you know, if you're going to eat it, it's going to hurt. You're going to go in hard. You know, it's, it's, you got to go big or go home. So, and the other thing too, is that wakeboarding wasn't, um, around at that time. So you, you look at guys like Ethan Shoulder, who's, you know, probably learned whirly birds at age 13 or 14. Um, you know, that's essentially, the same move um, you know there's a lot of different modes on a wakeboard so these guys can can either learn on a cable or or their wakeboard skills to take it to the big ramp uh you mentioned some initiation stories at the gardens let's let's jump to the pro tour you're on the pro tour at age 10 and speaking of that you know i know obviously some it, it had to be some pretty wild times on the pro tour because uh, you, you mentioned that you were at a stop in Madison, and I know where it was held. It was held in Monona Bay. And to this day, because of that tour stop, the residents on that bay will not allow Mad City to ski in there. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure what happened, but again, you were 10, um, but I'm sure it was, uh, I'm sure you guys had some good times. Any particular stories from your, from your days on the tour? Look, not not so much for me. I mean, I think I probably tried to take advantage of the guys that were partying because I was just trying to get on the podium. And, you know, I was, my first year on the tour, I was age 15. And, and strangely enough, my last year on the tour, I was age 19. So I was pretty young the whole time. Um, you know, some of the show skiers, I, I can recall, you know, Rusty Stewart was a partier. Um, you know, Hank, I wouldn't, Hank was a partier, but, you know, I never went out, really went out with the guys until sort of the, the end of my my time um you know schmick always enjoyed uh, a beer um but i think the biggest tournament of the year for partying was always marine world that's when show skiing met three event skiing um and you look at guys like uh steve hoblitzel or mark mikey that that skied out uh in marine world in the mid 90s and and that was probably the biggest party of the year because three event skiers kind of let their hair down a little bit um but for me i was i was at a young age and and uh you know i was influenced by bartlett's and and didn't did start drinking beer at probably age 15 or 16, but 
but I was um, rooming with Dave Reinhardt or Skip Yokerson, and I was really to bed and, and uh, trying to make the most out of my opportunity to get on the podium. <laughs> Talk a little bit about um, Dave Reinhardt. You mentioned you met him doing a show when you were quite young. Uh, what was your relationship with him, and did he have any influence on you as you were kind of coming into your own on the tour, and, and uh, what was your relationship with Dave? Yep. Dave is the most humble guy you'll ever meet. Um, I probably met him when I was around age 11, probably around that Madison Pro Tour. Uh, I think he skied the tour in 87. Um, and I think he won his first tour in 88. But he really took me under his wing. Um, he drove me around to the to the tournaments. Um, and he, I think just his, his humbleness and his um, focus on the sport, you know, he wasn't the most athletically talented guy. You know, if you look at, you know, I think Scotty was was far superior in, in his technician and his skills, but Dave just had the tenacity and he was so focused on on winning and being one step ahead of everybody else. And, and uh, he, you know, he invented the front mode and that was the trick that he always said, you know, made his whole career. Um, so really learned a lot from Dave, um, spent a lot of time with him in, in West Palm Beach area of training. Um, we did a lot of hang gliding together, uh, hang gliding on the pro tour. Um, so yeah, we, we still talk probably once a month and, and he's doing well and, and, uh, got a lot of great, great times and, and learned, you know, a lot from, from Dave. I, I never have met Dave personally, but I remember growing up. I mean, if it was, if there was a skier that was in water ski magazine and in all the advertisements that I remember, it was Dave Reinhardt. Yeah, he's, uh, he's a legend for sure. Matt, take us. So you mentioned early on that you skied at Bartlett's for 20, 21 years in total. Um, talk about that time. And I mean, because that's a huge chunk of your skiing career. Your professional skiing career was at Tommy Bartlett's Lake Delton. Talk about that time and, and your history there and, and, and maybe share any good stories you have from your Bartlett days. Uh, yeah, look, the early days, um, I, you had skiers like Mark Jackson, who still is heavily involved in USA water skiing. Uh, Mark was was one of the earlier you know legends that I remember there. Um, guys like Charlie Hoke uh, was quite a skier in his day. Jim Elliott, who's the first guy that ever did a, a gainer off the ramp, which I believe was around 1978, 78, 79. Um, but I grew up in a, in a strange, you know, place where a young kid, you know, was um, – open to all the craziness that happens, not necessarily uh, after the show, but all the crazy happenings between, you know, between shows and, and they're all co college age people. So from the age of, you know, four, I was kind of around that. And, um, you know, I think later in life, it, it's made me be a little bit more mature, but at the same time, I was probably immature and, and, and being too cocky as I was growing up around that, uh, that environment. But, um, Look, I think it came to probably like the age of 11 or 12, and I was doing some helis in the show, and I was doing back barefoot. Um, and I remember being next to guys, you know, doing helis that were twice my age, if not more. And and uh, they were really cool experiences. Um, you know, Tom Deal opened the door for a lot of a lot of show skiers in Wisconsin, and certainly every opportunity that uh, you know created there for me was something that I took took on later in life and was able to travel the world and. Um, you know, I think stories wise, if I don't, I don't have anything 
too juicy, but I think my time with Eric Schultz there, probably in the 91 to 94 ish, <laughs> there was a few touch and go times where we were, uh, we were on the list to be fired doing, doing silly stuff around the dock with breaking jet skis and just being, being silly probably during work and after work. But, um, look, it's such a great environment there. And I, I love going back there today and, and still seeing Tom Deal, seeing Mark Mikey. Um, it's such a legacy, not just in the state of Wisconsin, but, um, for the sport of show skiing and, and worldwide now, I mean, you talk everybody in Australia knows the Tommy Bartlett show because they've got uh, skiers that want to go there. And, uh, you know, it's still pretty much the only place to ski professionally. And you've got the uh, Madeline and Alicia Stewart from Australia here that come over and Troy Roker skied there. And, um, you know, the door's kind of open for people around the world still to um, come there and experience that uh, that culture of Tommy Bartlett's. All right, Adam. Well, that wraps up part one in our interview with Matt May. That's right. That was just part one. We had so much great stuff to share uh, from Matt, that we will have a part two with Matt May in our next episode. Such amazing stories and history from him. His experiences are really unlike any other. Yeah, I mean, there's only a handful in the world with a history as rich and deep as his. I mean, just great stuff. And like you said, he was getting paid to water ski at age two, and he really didn't remember stuff until he was nine. So he spent seven years of, as a professional athlete that he doesn't even remember. Yeah, that's insane. And the number of names he he dropped that uh, he skied with and and uh, learned from and was influenced by, uh, just an amazing history. So great stuff. We will have part two with Matt in our next episode. All right, Adam, let's uh, introduce to our audience our final segment, and it's called Mailbag. And this is where the audience submits questions to us, and we pick out a few to answer. So you ready to go? This is our first episode. I don't understand how we have questions already, but yeah, let's do this. <laughs> we sure do. We've actually had a handful submitted. So first question, uh, Whitney sent us a question. She wants to know, what is Matt and Adam's favorite all-time ski show? And what is your favorite show theme-wise? What's your favorite theme? Favorite all-time ski show if I'm looking at skiing and production combined favorite all-time ski show, uh, Sarasota 2017. I mean, I just, it was almost perfect. I mean, everything, the theming, the production, the props, the costumes, the announcing, the script. And then of course the skiing uh, was amazing. Uh, yeah. I think that hands down, probably one of my, probably the favorite all-time ski show for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, that was, I agree. That was amazing. If that, if I had to pick an all time ski show, that would probably be it. If, a few others that come to memory for me as I think about favorite, you know, so if I, I'll, I'll start with theme, Sarasota, there, that Star Wars theme was out of this world good. And that's probably the best all time. One that's got a special place in my heart uh, when I look at theme is our Dr. Seuss show uh, that we did uh, also in 2017. And, you know, that that year was interesting because uh, Wonder Lake won nationals in 2016 with a killer production. They did the circus. It was awesome. And that really raised the bar for everybody to do bigger productions. And we at that moment chose to go bigger uh, on Mad City with production and start doing more kid friendly 
productions. My daughter uh, loves to take credit for this because uh, in 2016, we did an election theme. I think you remember that, Adam. It was an election year, so we did the election. Yes. And my my daughter was eight, and she said, Dad, I don't get it. Why don't you do a, a theme that is good for kids? And so it dawned on me, and when I was show director in 2017, we went with Dr. Seuss, and that was a, a giant production, and uh, I wrote the story uh, myself, and as well as the rhyming that went throughout the show. So for me, that's got a got a special place in my heart theme-wise, uh, but it's hard to top Sarasota in 17. Yeah, and if we go back, I mean, if we just are speaking theme-wise, I'm going to go back to when I first uh, started show skiing, um, watching shows. So this was the late 90s, but uh, I really enjoyed Little Crow. Uh, they did uh, Late Night with Little Crow, and they did Camp Little Crow, and those were very any, very entertaining uh, very funny shows. So those, those kind of stood out for me and that, had, you know, that kind of takes us back a little bit, but, uh, really enjoyed those. Sure does. And actually I was thinking back to that era as well. One of the, um, one of my other favorite shows was 1996, uh, Wonder Lake. That was their first national championship, but I remember seeing them early in the year. We actually went to a tournament. There was a pre-season tournament in Wausau that we used to go every year and Wonder Lake came one year and I remember watching that show and saying that's a championship team that's a championship show they had a Universal Studios theme and but they just had killer skiing and lo and behold they went on to win their first nationals in 96 and and it was a heck of a show so that's one of my favorites uh all right let's move on to the next question Al wants to know what made adam do the chubby bunny skit for the first time okay you're taking us back a little bit um well believe it or not that was actually uh probably a stepping stone for me uh in my early on in my announcing career and what i mean by that is this i think if i go back i go back to central regionals and this was probably 2003 first and only time that Mad City went down to Central Regionals. And Matt, where was it held? Uh, that was at uh, Backwater Gambler's site. And is that the Mississippi River? Uh, yeah, it was on the river. It was, it was on a river. crazy current. Right. So it was It was that. So we. I was announcing, um, setting up for opening Pyramid to come through. And, you know, with any big act where you have a lot of people, uh, it takes a little bit for that act to get set up and come through. So you have a little bit of fill before the pyramid, which is normal, expected. Um, so I was talking, talking, talking. Um, pyramid never showed up, ever. Not, no, not not just like a three high and some random skiers uh, just never came through, period. Not even a boat. Uh, what ended up happening is because of the current on that river, uh, I guess the ropes got sucked under the barge and the boat was out of position and just it just never happened. So if you think about that, you've got the fill before the pyramid, which is planned for. But then when the pyramid comes through and by the time it comes down, and by the time you intro it, it's probably a couple minutes, two, three minutes there. And then you've probably got to fill after that to get all those people to the next act. Well, if you add all that time together, you're probably looking at close to 10 minutes. I was literally sizzling on stage. <laughs> And from that point forward, uh, you know, here's where I talk about the stepping stone. I, you know, from that point forward in all of our themes and all of our productions, I've always had 
uh, what I call contingency fills planned. And that's where if um, the shit really hits the fan, you've always got something um, to go back to. And that's when I started uh, keeping a bag of marshmallows on the stage with me because as we discovered when I first did Chubby Bunny, people thought it was funny and I can make that fill as long as it needs to be, as long as I can keep putting marshmallows in my mouth. And so I think that's really when it started was uh, because of that pyramid disaster at Central Regionals in 2003. Uh, that was my go-to uh, shit hit the fan fill. Yeah, I actually remember that vividly. That, that uh, backwater site is on the Rock River and the uh, current was insane. And we are not used to current and we had pyramid ropes under skis wrapped around them before the boat even takes off. It was a mess. So thank goodness you had Chubby Bunny because uh, you, you needed it. Well, Adam, that's a wrap. Well, I don't think that was too bad for our first ever podcast. Uh, thank goodness the listeners can't see my pit sweat over here. And I'm not wearing any pants. <laughs> well, that's good to know. Uh, all right. Well, thank you. Tune in next time for part two of our interview with Matt May. He's going to talk about some of the hardest tricks he's ever made, some of the biggest crashes he's ever had. He's going to talk about the future of professional and amateur shows. He's going to share some advice for skiers today. And he's going to tell us what he's doing with Action Horizons and what his future on the water has in store. And let's thank our sponsors today, Action Horizons and The Board Shop. Make sure you visit bswake.com and use the discount code the Ski Show and get all your summer gear. Well done, Adam. We did it. Well, now let's hope people actually listen. <laughs> Until next time, it's Adam and Matt signing off. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Ski Show, the ultimate show ski podcast with Matt and Adam. We're the only show specifically dedicated to all things show ski. If you have feedback or ideas for future shows, hit us up on social media or email us at theskishowpodcast at gmail.com.